The reading for today's sermon comes from the book of Acts, chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful and gracious Father, Fill us with wonder and amazement, we pray, at the transforming power of your grace, that we may encounter today some echo of what this man encountered when, through Jesus' representatives, Peter and John, he met Jesus and so was brought closer to you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat and let me add my welcome to... The earlier welcome to you. I know we've got a number of folks here who are visiting us today or here for the first time. It is a real blessing for us to have you with us, and we hope that you'll stick around for the baptism reception so that as we're saying big hellos and welcomes to the Shob family, we can also get to know you a little bit. I'd like you to cast your mind back, uh, those of you who are regulars here at All Saints. And those of you who are not regulars at All Saints, let me tell you what I have in mind. I'd like you to cast your minds back a few weeks to when this pulpit was filled with Pastor Jan Prorok from the Czech Republic. He visited after the CREC Council meeting and he did a bunch of interviews and podcasts and forum and of course he preached to us a really remarkable sermon. And at one point, I think it was during forum and then in conversation afterwards and then I think I'm perhaps on one of the podcast recordings as well, he mentioned his past. I used to be a Satanist, he said, which raised a few eyebrows, <laughs> which is not the normal path, is it, for somebody to become a CREC pastor? I can tell you it's not the normal path for somebody to become a CREC pastor. I know I talk, he talked about it with a few people afterwards. Um, I, I talked about it with him a little bit. I don't want to go into the detail. I have no... Um, intention to say more than he said publicly or to glory in the lurid details. But let me just say that what it highlights is that this man experienced a very significant transformation. Again, omitting the lurid details, Pastor Prorok's plan, such as it was in his confused pre-Christian mind, was to cause as much carnage as possible before taking his own life in the Czech Republic, 
uh, it's relatively easy to cause carnage. Uh, as in the US, firearms are available for general use, and so you could imagine what that might mean for anyone unfortunate enough to cross his path. And now what we have is a man who's a husband and a father and a pastor who came here to preach a sermon about God's extraordinary care for the most vulnerable in society, the unborn children. And it raises an issue. This transformation that we have seen in that man, that treasure of God's grace, that gift to us and to the church, it raises the issue I want to talk about today, which I've simply called transformation, because I want to talk about a, different, a number of different aspects of it. More precisely, I want to talk about the possibility of each of us experiencing, let's just say, a more dramatic transformation in our way of life and our outlook on life, our attitude to life, perhaps our ability to serve others, a more dramatic transformation in our ongoing wrestling against indwelling sin than we might previously or normally have expected, especially if you've given up hope. And it can be a temptation, can't it? If you've been a Christian for a number of years and you, you feel the, the first love begin to fade and the zeal that you see in others and the joy and, frankly, the growth in maturity you see in people 10 or 20 or 30 years younger than you, you don't see in yourself and you begin to wonder why. And maybe you've given up hope. Because... Such hopelessness is clearly evident in the man we meet today, the hero of today's story, this man, chapter 3, verse 1, whom Peter and John meet when they're going up to the temple, verse 1, at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, the normal time for prayers in the temple in Jerusalem. And here he comes, or rather here he is brought. This man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate. Just pause for a moment to consider the absolute abject helplessness of his situation. We prayed today, didn't we? Uh, Elder Douglas led us in prayer for people whose situation is hopeless or closer to hopeless. It's never hopeless, of course. But we prayed today for some people whose situation is more dire than ours. Let's just say it like that. Well, this man, okay, at least he has friends who carry him to place him at the gate of the temple, okay? But that's pretty much where the good news stops for him. Just consider all the frustration, all the loneliness, the hunger, the long days sitting in the sun for weeks and months and years and decades on end, squinting up at the passers-by, wondering, will somebody have pity on me today? How many times do you think, how many times do you think he woke up in the morning? You know when it's like when you're dimly awake, and, and the thing you just dreamed about, you're not quite sure whether it was real. I wonder if he had those experiences just the other way around, when the things that he'd known the previous day to be real, he just wondered for a fleeting moment, whether, maybe that's a dream. Maybe this is one long nightmare, and I've just woken up. And then a second or two later, as the, the clarity of wakefulness burst upon him, and he realized, no, the nightmare is real. The bad dream is the truth. This is one long living nightmare of helplessness. In fact, you know, at the end of this section, chapter 4, verse 22, 
Luke discloses to us, the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. That means, by the way, that he was born before Jesus. Jesus was 30-something when he died. And so every day when he was at the temple, he would have seen the crowds coming and going and he'd have seen preachers coming and going and he'd have seen all kinds of things happening and he'd probably seen Jesus probably multiple times. The temple is a large area. It's Herod's rebuilt temple. It's about 40 acres in size. It's quite large. But the gate at which he was sitting, more on that in a few minutes' time, was uh, a very prominent one. It's the one that everyone had to pass through. And here he sat and he would have seen Jesus as Nazareth come and walk past and walk out and come again the next day and walk past. Maybe Jesus is not for me. Maybe I've been forgotten. Until now, verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, just look at your Bibles and, and just relive this remarkable moment. He asked to receive alms as he'd done 10,000 times before. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. At least this is a good sign. And Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. This long nightmare is finally over in the blink of an eyelid. As this man is completely transformed, it turns out that this Jesus Christ of Nazareth hadn't forgotten him after all. This Jesus, whom this man had seen come and go perhaps a hundred times, heard of him dying, maybe heard the stories of him being raised, maybe heard all the kerfuffle of Pentecost, this is shortly after Pentecost, this Jesus hasn't forgotten him. This fits actually with a big picture of the book of Acts and, and the, the gospel of Luke. You know Luke and Acts are written by the same person, both written by the, uh, the early preacher and evangelist Luke. In Acts chapter 1 verses 1 to 3, you remember uh, Luke introduces the second book by talking about the first book. In the first book, O Theophilus, who's the guy he mentions in Luke chapter 1 verses 1 to 4, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up, until his ascension and so on. And so uh, what that sets us up for is the idea that Acts is kind of Luke part two. And I wanted to highlight this to you. This is not the sort of detail I would normally go into in a sermon. This is the sort of scaffolding for the sermon that normally gets left behind in a pile of papers and notes on my study desk. But if you turn to the, the insert in the order of worship, I want to show you this just very briefly. Just to, maybe this will be helpful to you as you're reading Luke and Acts in your own Bible study. You notice that the two books are very sharply parallel to each other. And Mrs. Loki helped me with the graphic design elements of this. I, I gave her the text and she magically turned it into something that you can read. Um, you look at the overview of Luke and Acts and what I've done is to uh, put down the, the middle in bold the main things that happen. And on the left you see what happens in Luke and in, on the right you see what happens in Acts. And you see basically the two stories are parallel stories. You're used to thinking of Luke and Acts, I know, as a, as a chiastic 
structure. There's a journey to Jerusalem in Luke. There's a journey out from Jerusalem in Acts. That's quite right. But there's this panel structure, this side-by-side structure, which sits alongside it. And here it is. Uh, There's an introduction to Theophilus. There's a twofold angelic vision at the beginning of Luke and the beginning of Acts. Baptism of Jesus. Baptism in the Spirit. Opposition. Jesus is opposed in Nazareth. The church is opposed in Jerusalem. There's a murder plot, a double murder plot in both books. Uh, The gospel goes to the outcast. Luke has this peculiar focus on the Gentiles and women and uh, tax collectors and sinners. And similarly, of course, the gospel is preached to the Gentiles in that bit large central section of the book of Acts 13 to 20. There's a fourfold trial of Jesus in Luke, a fourfold or four actual trials of Paul in Acts 21 to 26. And then there's a death and resurrection at the end. You didn't spot the death and resurrection in the book of Acts, did you? Well, of course there's a death and resurrection because there's a shipwreck. And you're like, what? That's being thrown into the sea and then being taken out of the sea is nothing to do with death and resurrection, is it? Now, hold on a second. That's exactly what Jesus says being thrown into the sea is. When he mentions Jonah, just as Jonah spent three days in the heart of the fish, so the Son of Man will spend three days in the heart of the earth before his resurrection. Thrown into the sea and out again, Jonah and Paul the Apostle, death and resurrection story. So you see what happens. You read this. You've got to picture yourself in um, in the place of an early Christian. You've got the book of Luke and you've read it. You've read the book of Luke, you've internalized it, and then you come to the book of Acts, and you get this like, I'm sure I've seen this before. It's like, I talked to Pastor Shaw about this, it's like kind of deja vu, isn't it? It's as though the things that the church is doing, empowered by the Spirit, echo the things that Jesus has done. You missed out on Jesus, sorry. You weren't around in 30 AD to hear him preach. No, you didn't miss out on Jesus. Because the gospel which continues to go forth to the nations, the gospel that began in the book of Acts, spreading out to the world, continues the work of Christ in the world. Jesus is still at work. If this man, this nation, every other nation that missed Jesus hasn't missed Jesus. It's not not like he's forgotten you. And of course, some of you know this because some of you most, maybe all of you in different ways, can, can ex- identify somehow with the experience of this man. In fact, I even noted, uh, zoom in a bit more detail into just Luke 4 and 5 and these early chapters of Acts, you see a bunch more parallels. Jesus healed a lame man who got more than he expected, which provoked opposition from the religious leaders, but the people didn't care, the people were enthusiastic about him. You get exactly the same pattern in the book of Acts. You see, in other words, what we're being encouraged to see here is that the same dramatic and miraculous transformation that we're used to seeing in the Gospels happens through these signs by which the message of the Gospel, which transforms the world, is accredited in the ministry of the early church and in the church down through the ages. Of course, this raises some interesting questions for us. The first question is a troubling one. I mean, this man waited 40 years. It's quite a high human cost, don't you think? It's quite a a high tariff teaching aid for God in his wisdom and sovereignty to leave a man crippled 
at the temple gate for half a lifetime. And, okay, uh, what's, what's the explanation for this? At one level, there is an explanation, but at another level, there's, I, I, there's no explanation. There, there's an explanation in this sense, that the process of renewal, the process of growing in maturity, sometimes takes time. Have you noticed that in yourself? I was watching a video. Somebody sent me a video the other day. Um, uh, the, the title of it was Forging a Sword from a Piece of Rusty Iron Chain. I was like, you're kidding me. <laughs> Serious? And, it, and I didn't have time to watch the whole thing. It was like 15 minutes long. So I looked at the beginning, and it's this like rusty piece of chain, like this big. And I, just, I haven't got time, 15 minutes. So I clicked right arrow, and then I scrolled the little slider along to the end, and there's this glittering three-and-a-half-foot-long polished razor-sharp blade. And the final scene of this video is this guy's got a thick piece of bamboo uh, stem, like three inches thick, and he gets this blade, and he goes, and it goes clean through it. And you think, now, what's fascinating, I, I, I looked at the, um, the description. This took weeks to do. Weeks of labor, weeks of hammering, weeks of heating, weeks of forging, weeks of grinding the edge down, weeks of polishing. And I wonder whether sometimes you feel like you're still in the polishing stage. Maybe you feel like you're still in the grinding stage. Still in the stage of being heaten up and hammered half to death and wondering when you're going to be able to stand up and walk. And I don't know. See, there's a biblical account of the reason for that kind of long, painful experience. But I, I don't know what to say to somebody who just wishes it would be over, except to say that we're called to trust that the living God will bring an end to it one way or another. We, we may, I guess, uh, look a little bit more closely at the man himself. It, We've got to be honest. Sometimes the truth is our own transformation takes longer than it needed to because of us. Uh, whose fault is this? Uh, me. And there are some hints here that, well, not so much negatively that this man wasn't ready for this before, but positively that he absolutely was here. Just look at the narrative again. I want to zoom in on some of these details with you because you, know, we, you see the big picture, that's abundantly clear, but just look at some of these details. There is a strange focus, don't you see, from verses three to five on seeing. Did you notice that when I was reading it? It was almost slightly overdone. Look with me. Verse three, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple. Okay, well, that's, that's fair enough, right? That's unremarkable. He asked to receive alms, and Peter, now this is where it gets strange, Peter directed his gaze at him. Now that's a very strange phrase. Um, the term is uh, rare in the Bible, and where it's used, it refers almost exclusively to somebody looking at a reflection of the glory of God, or something that gives them a glimpse into the presence of God. It's used in Acts chapter 1, verse 10, when the disciples were looking into heaven after the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, what they saw was the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's used in chapter 6, verse 15, when the people are gazing at Stephen, and they saw that he had the face of an angel. It looks, it's at the end of chapter 7, where Stephen himself is gazing into heaven, and he sees the glory of God. And so you look at these, this is an interesting scene, because the man sees Peter and John, verse 3, and then verse 4, Peter directed his gaze in the kind of way that you do in biblical thought when you're seeing something that God has made magnificent, something that reflects the glory of God. I wonder if part of what's going on here is that you're, Peter is living by faith. Yeah? Peter sees in this man what this man could become. Did Jesus... Is it conceivable that, Pete, that Jesus left this man at the temple gate so that Peter would have the opportunity to see somebody hopeless and to look at them and to see in him what God could make of him? I, I don't know whether that's everything that's going on here, but it strikes me as an interesting lesson for us, isn't it? It's like... How tempting it is for us to see what people are and not what they could become. I have to say, it's less of a temptation in church contexts where more of us have been spiritual cripples. In a church context where um, a large percentage of the congregation can tell a story like Pastor Prorok's story, nobody looks at an outsider, a Satanist, somebody whose sin has ruined them and thinks, yeah, well, they're, yeah, they're beyond hope. What they're, what they're able to do, what, what Pastor Prorok can do is he can look at somebody who's a spiritual cripple or a wannabe murderer and look at them and he can see in them the latent, as yet unrenewed glory of God. But I have to say, for those of us who've been privileged to have been raised in Christian families. You, you may have been systematically secluded from the chaos and carnage and ugliness of the world out there by your parents who rightly wanted, wanted to raise you in, a, in an environment that was already, so to speak, transformed. But can you see, like, every... Every silver lining has a cloud. <laughs> Not to be, I'm not being negative or cynical about it, but every circumstance has a potential way in which it could become a source of problems. We could easily find ourselves being the church of people who've basically got it sorted out. Hey, because like, we've never known a day when we didn't love Jesus. Can you see the danger? Now, this is, this is not supposed to be a sermon about parenting, right? but it does raise interesting and difficult issues for parents you might phrase it like this at what point and in what ways is it appropriate to give our children the opportunity and indeed impose on our children the necessity to encounter a world which is really much more messed up than we've tried to keep their home environment it raises similar questions for all of us doesn't it See, all of us could live in a kind of holy huddle. And that's, it's good insofar as we enjoy and embrace here the blessings of the Spirit that the Lord has given us. I was at uh, 
event last night, a number of other folks were there where we just had a party, eat some good food, singing some psalms. And it's just like a little picture of the, the glory of the fellowship that God has welcomed us into. But we're going to discover in the next few weeks that these people didn't just stay in their kind of holy huddle in Jerusalem in the early church. They were driven out. Actually, they were driven out by persecution to encounter a world which was dark and ugly and hostile. And they went out having ringing in their ears the, the story that we've just read this morning of a man who's completely transformed. So they never encounter evil and think this can't be overcome by the grace of God. Verse 4 again. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. This is really getting a bit overdone now, all this emphasis on looking. And then verse 5, this is very strange. And he fixed his attention on them. Literally, the word is he held fast to them. It's like he held them fast with his gaze, gazing directly at them. Which once you realise where they're located is all the more remarkable. Just look at the, um, the geographical notes. I mentioned my... Uh, one of my former professors and godfather to one of my children, uh, New Testament scholar Matthew Sleeman, wrote his, PhD, wrote his second PhD, sorry, on the theology of the book of Acts and especially what the locations tell us about the message that's being conveyed. Where are they located? Where are they lo- what's around them? Well, they're, verse 2, they're at the gate of the temple that's called the beautiful gate. Now, I need to tell you about this gate. The temple complex, as I mentioned before, that Herod rebuilt was about 40 acres in size. Massive place. There were seven gates in total in the temple complex. And all of them were plated in gold and silver and encrusted with beautiful decorations. All of them apart from one, which was a good dozen feet or so higher than the others. It was made of polished brass. It was 75 feet high. It was called the Nicanor Gate. And that's the gate that here is called the Beautiful Gate. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, remarks that this gate was more valuable than all the other gates. You imagine a gate that's like, I don't know, 20 feet tall and gold plating on its surface. People come from miles around to gaze at this gate. The pilgrims who are in Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks would have come like, oh, they're wonderful. But then they'd get to the beautiful gate and it's like, oh my goodness. You know, it's sightseeing. People, you, if you've ever been to a place where people flock to go sightseeing... Empire State Building, Statue of Liberty, everyone's like this. Wow. Where's everybody looking? Everyone's looking at the magnificence of this earthly picture of the, well, soon-to-be-fading picture of the glory of God, the old covenant temple. And Peter and John say, look at us. And the man's like, everyone else is looking that way and I'm looking this way because I'm looking at these men. You see what's happening? It's a very significant gesture. His eyes are fixed on these messengers of Jesus, the Messiah. I wonder, I wonder if part of the the story we're supposed to see here is not just of a man who's sat there languishing, waiting for deliverance, but of a man who, frankly, at other times in his pitiable life had not been ready to receive whatever it was that the apostles wanted to give him. Shall I let you into a secret? It's not really a secret. I've told this to a few people before. Um, The first rule of pastoral ministry, 
The first rule of pastoral ministry is you can't help people who don't want the kind of help that Jesus can give. It took me a long time to learn that one. It took me a long time trying to chase up people in the streets of North London who I'd met once outside the tube station doing evangelistic questionnaires who seemed kind of interested. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, we should meet up for a cup of coffee sometime. And I, here's my phone number. And, then, and I, okay, that sounds exciting. So I pray and I text them back and then uh, they wouldn't reply. And I text them and say, hey, do you want to meet somewhere? And they say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd be Tuesday morning. I'd go there and they wouldn't come. And then I'd call and they'd block my number. It's like, it took me a long time to realize you can't help people who don't want the kind of help that Jesus wants to give. And there are lots of people who just don't want the kind of help that Jesus is ready to give. And so what did Peter and John say? Look at us. And they're looking at him. And he looks at them. Can you see? What, what you're seeing dramatically enacted here is a picture of a man who is desperate. And I think sometimes the reason why our lives are not transformed, like Pastor Prox has been, the reason why we don't experience that freedom from indwelling sin that we think we sort of want is because we only think we sort of want it. You're not desperate enough, in other words. You know, notice how often Jesus asks people, what do you want? It's like, I want to see. <laughs> okay, good. First rule of pastoral ministry, you can't help people who don't want the kind of help that Jesus gives. There's that subtle point about the function of the Old Covenant temple, of course. You notice all that stuff going up to the temple, verse 1. Gate of the temple, verse 2. Entering the temple, verse 2. About to go into the temple, verse 3. Entered the temple, verse 8. Entering the temple, entering the temple, entering the temple. What happens when they get there? What are you expecting to happen when you go into the temple? Well, obviously, Old Covenant faithful Israelite, you go into the temple, you offer sacrifices. Wrong. He goes into the temple, and the temple's function is in the process of being superseded by the preaching of the apostles. No sacrifice, no going to the priests to figure out what to do, because we've had a great high priest now who's told us what to do. This is my son, my beloved, listen to him. And here he speaks through his apostles, just to anticipate what we're looking at next week. Peter begins his sermon, everyone's like... Gawping at these men like Peter and John and this guy that they recognized used to sat here for the last four decades and now he's walking around and leaping about and praising God and they say men of Israel why are you looking at us the God of Israel the God of our father Abraham Isaac and Jacob has glorified his servant Jesus who you crucified oops see the, you see the point that a sermon about Jesus of Nazareth has replaced the function of this temple Finally, just a couple of thoughts about the nature of this miracle itself. I mean, he's not a blind man who's able to see. He's not a deaf man who can hear. He's not a lame man who is cleansed. Sorry, he's not a leper who's cleansed. He's a lame man who's enabled to walk. And again, verses 6 to 9, you see this kind of repeatedly hammered home, almost to the point where you're like, Luke, yeah, yeah, we got it, we got it. Just look with me at verse... Um, uh, verse 6, what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him and raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. You've got Luke the doctor's little bit of medical description going on here. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and enter the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. See what's happening. That the, the narrator, Luke, is piling up the verbs to, 
encourage you to focus on what's significant about a lame man being healed. And of course, there's lots of things you could say about this. Part of the background is in the Old Testament text that Jesus cites when he's asked to explain his ministry. In Luke chapter 7, a bunch of messengers from John the Baptist, they come to Jesus and they say, are you the one who was to come or should we expect somebody else? And it's like big drum roll. Like, is Jesus the one? And Jesus answers by quoting from a very well-known Old Testament text. It's Isaiah 35. Now, Isaiah 35 is famous in part because it's got this vision of the renewal of the world. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. And the reason it rejoices is because the glory of the Lord returns to Jerusalem and to his temple. So the way the vision works is the climax of a long series of chapters of judgment against the nations of the world and against the unrepentant people of Israel. But then the Lord returns to his temple. And it's as though where he walks, he leaves in his footsteps in the wilderness flowers growing up. And so the Lord returns to his temple, and in verses 5 and 6 of that chapter, the prophet says, Then shall the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Verse 6, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. That verb for leap is like four times in the whole Bible. It's here. It's in Acts 3. Clearly, what Luke is trying to tell us is we're supposed to interpret this lame man walking in the context of this prophecy in Isaiah 35 about what Jesus has come to do. So Jesus is the Lord returning to Zion, returning to the temple, where he's going to flip over the tables, obviously, and say, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it again. But just keep looking. Keep, if you've got Isaiah 35 open, just look down towards the end of the chapter. Why is it so important that the lame should be able to walk? The answer is it's not just the Lord who's going to Zion. There's a pilgrimage. The people of God are returning. Verse 8, a highway shall be there. It shall be called the way or the path of holiness. The unclean shall not pass on it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they're fools, they shan't be led astray. The redeemed shall walk there. The ransomed of the Lord shall return with singing. You know why it's so, such a wonderful blessing that the lame should be healed? It's because they can now join the pilgrimage. They can join with the people of God going to meet the living God himself. And of course, in the narrative of the book of Isaiah, the reason they're going there is because chapter 40, they're going to be um, the ones whose feet are beautiful, who preach good news, who are on this mission to the nations of the world. So you get this big turning point in Isaiah between chapters 37 and 40, sorry, 36 and 40, where the people who have come to Zion, chapter 35, then go out from Zion to the world to take the gospel to the nations, which is exactly what the book of Acts is all about. Let me illustrate what I mean by this. This, this lame man being healed. This is not, oh, isn't he? Poor guy. Let's give him a break, shall we? It's more like this. I, I, forget, I forget when the game was. I think it was, um, it may have been the 2004 Rugby World Cup. England was playing France. Okay, I know some of you are not into rugby. It's like American football. Sorry, football. It's without so much body armour. Uh, sorry. And there's this moment when um, Sebastian Chabal, this French forward, absolutely flattens one of the England players. I think it's um, Ben Cohen or something, little guy, winger. Now, if you, if you don't know who Sebastian Chabal is, just go to YouTube and Google rugby big hits. Okay, he's the guy with masses of hair who looks like, basically looks like a bear, about six foot eight or something. 
And poor old Ben Cohen gets absolutely nailed by this guy, spread across about 10 feet of the ground. And he's like, like this. Like a lame man who can't move. And then what happens is the England rugby captain, Martin Johnson, who himself is like six foot seven, 260 pounds, comes along and he grabs this guy by the shirt, physically lifts him off the ground, puts him back on his feet and just jogs away. And it's like, <laughs> no pity. Well, kind of pity, but it's like, it's more that we have a job to do. On your feet, son. We have work to do. Game's not over. And it's really interesting. You look back at Acts chapter 3. I'm going to finish with this. Look what it says. Verse 7. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. It doesn't say that. This is no kind of you know, pride and prejudice, take the right hand of the lady as she steps down from the carriage. The verb is to seize or grasp 14 times in the New Testament. It either means to arrest somebody by force or to grab them, as in by the scruff of the neck, and just haul them to their feet. There, there is pity here for this lame man. But what they're actually doing is re- recruiting another soldier in the army. On your feet, son. Get up. Ugh. Right, let's go. Because we've got work to do. And Jesus is recruiting the lame man to walk along the way with him. Let's pray together, shall we? Merciful Father, we're thankful to you for your abundant grace to us. And how often we underestimate it, we underestimate your transforming power. Perhaps we look at ourselves in hopelessness or we look at those around us underestimating your capacity to transform them. Or we look at ourselves with pity rather than realising that we have been hauled to our feet because we have a job to do. Set us walking on the way, we pray, with Jesus to take this message to the world. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.